0: Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And our text this morning will be verses 6 to 10. I think we'll begin at verse 1 when I catch my breath. And we'll read to verse 10. Listen to the word of God this morning. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming." That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we tackle our text this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has been given to us in human language, that it has been given to us in our language so that we might read it, that we might be able to understand it. In fact, you you expect us to understand it. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that illuminates the truth so that we might know truth for sure. And so this morning, again, as we look at your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us that he would again guide us into the truths of your word and that we might go out from here more in love with our Lord Jesus Christ, more informed about your plan for the future and rejoicing in the hope that we have in your return, I pray. In your name, amen. So we've been walking our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians and if you remember in chapter 1 he really comforted them under persecution. He wanted to to comfort them because of the hardships that they were going through. And really chapter 2 we could say is an extension of that because he now wants to comfort them about future events and the day of the Lord. They are under persecution, they are having a hard time and therefore someone has come along and told them that they are in the middle of the day of the Lord. In fact, they had received either from a spirit, whether someone had said the, the, the spirit told me or spoke to me or a message, some sermon, or there seems to have even been a false epistle that was going around or a false letter from Paul himself saying that they were in the day of the Lord. And really, verses 1 and 2, we looked at and we saw Paul really say, don't lose your mind. Calm down. You're not in the day of the Lord. Remember what I told you. Don't be shaken from your composer, composure. And the idea there is that they are so consumed by that idea that they are now, their mind is all over the place, their emotions are all over the place because they have Quickly moved away from what Paul has taught them to believe this new information, and Paul wants to rectify that and say, "No, I, I'm not. What that letter was not from me. Stay with what I taught you. Don't be shaken. I'm not teaching contra- contradictory teaching." And then we moved on and he says, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy come first and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the son of destruction. And so Paul writes this and and we we looked at this and we went over some grammar, which we're not gonna do this week because uh, there were some groans last week. But the idea is this, At the end of verse 2, he says the day of the Lord has not come. And the idea here is that the day of the Lord is not present. They actually think they're in the day of the Lord. And Paul says, don't be alarmed by someone saying that you're in the middle of the day of the Lord. And then as we skip down to verse 3, he has this little sentence in between, and then he goes, for it will not come. And we said that this there is a clause that comes after that unless. And that unless clause or that unless clause needs to be identified by a verb in front of it. In other words, it should read the verb from verse 2 for the day of the Lord is not present. Now all of your translations say it will not come. But the verb needs to be supplied from verse 2, so it should read, For the day of the Lord is not present. So it it should not read, it will not come. It should read, it is not present unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And what we saw is that the first The word first applies to that the apostasy comes before the man of lawlessness. And therefore, verse 3 has this idea. For the day of the Lord is not present unless during the day of the Lord, the apostasy comes first, and after the apostasy comes, the man of lawlessness is revealed. All right, so the, the idea is there are two events that are taking place during the day of the Lord. The apostasy will come and then the man of sin will be revealed or the man of lawlessness. Those are two events that take place during the day of the Lord, not prior to the day of the Lord. And we said Paul had already said that the day of the Lord would come like a thief in the night. He's certainly not going to start putting conditions on the day of the Lord and say these things must happen before the day of the Lord comes. Otherwise, he couldn't say it comes like a thief in the night because you would know you would have warning signs. Then he describes that he will exalt himself, he will set himself up as God, he will set himself up in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. And he will will ultimately demand that the world worship him as he takes up his place, we saw, in the temple in Jerusalem, declaring himself to be God. And then Paul, we said in verse 5, gave a little bit of a scolding, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? I already told you this. I already told you this. Well, now as we come to our text this morning, Paul is going to give them some more information about the man of lawlessness. We could call him the Antichrist, this one to come. And I'm going to give you some more information about him. And I don't want you to be ignorant about this. I don't want you to not understand what will take place. And again he wants to comfort them so that they know they're not in the day of the Lord and so by giving more information maybe about the man of lawlessness the antichrist they can know for sure they're not in the day of the Lord because they don't see some of these events. And so today as we look at this as we look we're going to look at the antichrist and maybe really look at his life and as we look at his life we will see first of all the antichrist's entrance. We're going to see him revealed, we're going to see him him displayed. And then we're going to see the Antichrist end. In other words, we're going to look and see what happens to him in the end. How successful is he? Then we will see the, the Antichrist's empowerment. How, what, how is he empowered? How can he do the things that he's done? And then lastly, we will see his entrapment. We will see those that believe him and what happens to those who are not God's. And so this morning, we will just simply look at the Antichrist and maybe his life, and we will see events that take place within that life. And so Paul says, and you know, all right? And first of all, we'll, we'll, we'll just look at the antichrist's entrance. And he says, and you know. And, and he says, basically, what he says in verse 5, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? In other words, you should know about this. I told you that the Antichrist would be set up. I told you that he would set himself up as God. And you know this, and you know, and guess what he says, and you know what specifically? What restrains him? What restrains the Antichrist? What keeps the Antichrist from coming on the scene? What keeps the man of lawlessness from being seen? but you'll notice this, they know, (laughs) they know. He says, you know what? So something's holding back the Antichrist. He says, you know what? But Paul doesn't tell us what what is, Mm -hmm. right? He could, and it would have been really nice if Paul had just said, this is what's holding him back, but he doesn't. And so, of course, this has spawned many, many different views as to what that is. What is restraining the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness from coming? Well, some have said, I know what it is. It's the preaching of the gospel. As we preach the gospel, that holds back evil. It keeps him in check. And as long as men preach the gospel, he's restrained. And as long as the gospel is needed to be preached, he can't come. He can't come on to history. After all, Jesus said in, in Matthew 24, 24, this is the gospel of the kingdom. It shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the world. Then the end will come. So ha, there it is. Well, the problem with that is that that doesn't mean that, that the gospel has to be preached before the church is raptured. It just says before the end comes. when Before the final day when God comes and sets up the eternal kingdom, it will happen. Well, how has the gospel been doing so far? It doesn't seem like we're really restraining the world right now, does it? Well, others say, well, it's the Jewish state. Israel Israel will hold everybody back how does that work doesn't really no right They're, they're not doing anything well it's the binding of Satan remember it talked about Satan being bound in Romans chapter 20 but does he seem like he's bound to you we would understand that that's he'll be bound what during the millennium so that's still future but he's certainly not bound in power right now. He's, he is deceiving the nations. Well, maybe it's the church, right? Aren't we salt and light? We're necessary to be here. We're salt and light. And as long as the church is here, we're going to be able to hold back evil. Well, is that Have we ever had a global, a global church that has just held back evil everywhere? We haven't, right? The church, the church is local. The church sometimes has a greater influence than others, but it's not restraining evil. Well, maybe it's the principle of law, morality, right? There's just some fabric in the world that keeps people from it. It restrains the Antichrist. I know what it is. It's the Roman Empire. That has been identified as the Roman Empire. Well, what's the problem with that? There is no Roman Empire. It's gone. But you'll notice this, and I I just want you to look at this. He says, and you know what restrains him now. In other words, something is restraining him now, and it is restraining the coming of the lawless one, and it is keeping evil from coming. Well, what actually can restrain evil? Humanity can't, and everything that we do can't. But there is one who does restrain evil, and we know that he keeps men from sin. And who's that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Right? So there is this force, it must be a supernatural force that is holding back the man of sin. And I think I, I, we'll talk more about this when we get to verse seven, but there is a supernatural, there needs to be a supernatural strength to hold back supernatural power. And we'll see that the Antichrist is coming in the power of Satan. There's a, so there needs to be a supernatural power to hold back what is coming. And we know this, Satan does not want to wait for God's timetable right? He doesn't want to hold back. He wants to take men down, right? He started in the garden. He has been doing everything. He did everything that he could to keep Christ from coming to be the redeemer. He tried to get rid of Israel in order to get so that the Messiah couldn't come. He has continued to try to to kill men and to deceive men and to to counterfeit everything that God has done. And he has tried to keep God from going in his program. And God is saying, actually, we're going to re- I'm going to restrain you. I'm going to keep that back because it's not my timetable, not yours, but mine. And again, we could say, here's the reason for the restraint, verse 6. So that in his time, he may be revealed. In his time, not Satan's time, not at Antichrist's time but in God's time literally in his season in other words there's a season for him to be seen there's a season for him to be exposed there's a season for his time in history but it's not now right now God is redeeming his church right now God is working in the world and he is he is in the process of saving all the elect out of the church he is in that process of, make, of, of having the church built. And we would say this, to borrow a term from Paul in Romans chapter 11: it is the time of what? The Gentiles. And the Antichrist will not come until the time of the Gentiles is full. And so God has a plan and he has a time. It's interesting because this is the same word that is used in Galatians chapter 4 for Christ. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman. And just like there was a perfect time for the Messiah to come. And when we looked at that, remember, it's not that history was right. It's not that God, that everything in history or in the world was right. It was when God decided in his sovereign time to bring Jesus Christ into the world. And he says, so it is with the what? The man of lawlessness. The false Messiah will come at the perfect time that is decreed by God. He won't come a day before and he won't come a day after. And again, this this is in the passive voice. It, It indicates that his revel- the revelation of the man of sin, will not be upon his doing, but he will it, he will be revealed. It will be God who is under control, not him. And so God is sovereignly control of his creatures, even if they are evil. continues in verse 7 and he says for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work he says i'm going to explain this more this is why the present restraint is needed in other words the reason that we're having to hold him back is because the mystery of lawlessness is already here in other words there is all the satan is already at work the character of lawlessness is already here we don't have the final work of, of the complete lawlessness that is to come. That is still a mystery. What what will take place when the Antichrist is here is still a mystery. We don't know the full revelation of evil, but it will but the beginning of it is already here. Evil will be fully let loose when the Antichrist comes, but that, that spirit is already here our world is already evil our wor- world is already full of false teachers and false religions we only have to look around every time you turn on the i don't know if anyone uses the tv anymore anytime you go on the internet and you hear you hear evil after evil after evil things you can hardly believe and yet there's going to come a time where this evil will be even worse. It's hard to believe. But even today, there is a satanic plan to overthrow and false Christs have come who have tried to bring lawlessness. 1 John 2.18 says, there's coming an antichrist in the future, but even now there are what? Many antichrists. Many people who lead people away from God. again the term mystery here doesn't mean something that's mysterious or unintelligible but simply simply something that has not been revealed it, in other words a mystery is in scripture is something that has been held in the counsels of god and can only be known by divine revelation And so he says, he is coming. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only who, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, that's interesting. Because when we looked earlier in the verse, in verse 6, it says... That, what restrains him? What restrains him? That's a neuter. What restrains him? And now we have he who now restrains. A masculine. Now people have done gymnastics around this and they've tried to explain that one's a force and one is, is, is a person. And, and they've done all sorts of gymnastics. But if you were to look at in John chapter 13 to 17 in the Upper Room Discourse, Christ continually switches between the neuter and the masculine as it refers to the Holy Spirit. And one thing we must understand is that the word spirit in Greek is neuter, right? So again, the idea here is that it adapts to the, to the grammar and it adapts to where it is. In other words, it's common for this to take place. And so for him to say that and then he can refer to the same person. And so the force that is holding back the Antichrist is clearly declared to be he. In other words, a person. Well, who is strong enough to hold back the Holy Spirit? Well, we talked in verse, I mean, to hold back, wow, not the Holy Spirit, <laughs> the man of lawlessness, sorry. Well, we, we said earlier that it would take a supernatural power to do that. It couldn't be human, so it must be supernatural. So who could that be? Well, I believe it's the what? The Holy Spirit. And I kind of spilt that earlier. I wasn't supposed to. But it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who what? Restrains and holds back sin. He is the one who exercises that force. And this is typical ministry of the Holy Spirit. Genesis 6.3 says, says, the Lord said, my spirit will not strive, what, with man forever. The idea that the Holy Spirit is striving against men and against their sin and calling them and convicting them. The Holy Spirit is battling against wicked men. And he says, I'm not going to do that forever. The Holy Spirit won't fight it forever. Forever. And we know that at that time that God removed and what? He flooded the earth and destroyed all but eight. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he also, Paul, uh, Luke writes, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your hearts and ears are always what? Resisting the Holy Spirit. And again, we have this Holy Spirit battling against sin, battling against iniquity, right? The Holy Spirit was given to us to what? John 16, to convict the world of what? Sin. And so it is is the Holy Spirit then that is dealing with sin, wrestling with sin, confronting sin, convicting of sin, restraining sin. So that restraint will go on until the man of sin is revealed until that time where the Holy Spirit is taken away. Now it's interesting, it says taken out of the way. Taken out of the way. Well, what does that mean to be taken out of the way? Does that mean that the Holy Spirit is simply removed from the earth completely? He, just, he t- gets up and leaves? Well, that might be a little hard to do because the Holy Spirit is what? Omnipresent. So it can't be referred to him spatially leaving the earth as if he just took off from earth and went to heaven and stayed there and and left the earth. And we know this, that during the tribulational period, because we have tribulational saints in heaven saying, Lord, how long before you avenge our, our death? We know that there are those who are being saved during the tribulation, so the Holy Spirit must be here. So what is happening? The Holy Spirit is removed and we would say that he removes himself and is taken out of the way in the terms of blocking Satan, in terms of his restraining ministry. So the Holy Spirit is simply taken out of the way as a restrainer, removed as a roadblock, but not removed from the world nor from his ministry of saving those whom he has chosen. And so we will see the Holy Spirit working because there's going to be the 144,000 who are preaching. The two prophets are going to be coming. The angel will declare the gospel. And we know that there are those who are saved and no one is saved outside of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So something is as a supernatural force the someone who exerts that supernatural force is the Holy Spirit. And then he says at the beginning of verse 8, then the lawless, non, lawless one will be revealed. In other words, this person, this personal embodiment of evil, will be clearly identified and revealed. Now, because he's called lawless doesn't mean that he's without any law, but rather that he will set himself in rebellion against God's law. He will have laws that you should obey towards him, but he will be in direct rebellion against God's law. And again, the idea is he will be revealed. In other words, this is God revealing. This is uh, Satan revealing his man. And so he says... The, the man of lawlessness will be revealed when the Holy Spirit has been removed. When the restrainer has removed, then this man of lawlessness, this one who has been in the wings, this one who's maybe been alive for years, this one who is going against all that God wants, will ultimately be revealed in a way that will be unmistakable. And so you could say even to the Thessalonians at this point, have you seen that? Has that taken place? And the answer to that is no. And so he says, you can't be in the day of the Lord. You you can't be in the day of the Lord. He has not been revealed. Well, as mighty as this man is, and the the fact that he is revealed and that that he is finally let loose on the earth as God... takes back his restraining power. We see that the Antichrist has a short ministry and we see his end. We see the Antichrist's end. It says, Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Again, he refers here to The fact that the Antichrist will be done away with in a supernatural way. The Lord will slay him. The Lord's going to kill him. He's going to kill him right at the height of the expression of his power. In Daniel 17, it says his dominion will be taken away and annihilated forever. Revelation has the same idea. It says the beast was and is not. In other words, he, he will be removed and he goes to destruction. He will be destroyed along with his power and he will be slain. The Lord will slay him. Now it's interesting, it says here that he will slay him by the breath of his mouth, by the breath of his mouth, by his words. Now it's interesting. You have a man who will seek world power, who will have armies, who will do all kinds of things. And yet the true God, as he sees this rebellion, will simply what? Slay him by his breath. He doesn't call an army. He doesn't call for his angels. He doesn't call for help. He simply what? Slays him with his breath. The phrase is, is a, used in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. With his righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted on earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This is where Paul was drawing from as he was speaking. Again, Isaiah thirty. Verse 33, the breath of the Lord like a torrent of brimstone sets afire. God lets out his breath as it were and it comes like fire. It consumes and destroys. And he says he, he, will, he will do it by the breath of his mouth and bring to an end, literally abolish, render it inoperative, Immobilize. And again, the idea here is not that he ceased to exist, but that he is immobilized and empowered and conquered. And he will bring an end to it. He will abolish it. At the appearing of his coming, he says. And again, this is the word appearance here is the word we get epiphany from, which means a manifest or appearing, uh, literally to shining forth. It was often used by the Greeks for the manifestation of their deities. And he says, Christ will appear in glory and power, a shining forth. And he will do it at, at, and it will be manifest at his coming. In other words, at his personal presence, he will be visible, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He will come out of heaven. And he will simply do away with the presumptuous and arrogant activity of the man of sin. And he does it in a moment by the breath of his mouth. And what happens to him, Romans chapter 20, verse 10, he's thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and tormented for forever, along with the devil and his angels and the false prophet. He will, so we see this man of sin, this antichrist will be revealed and he will be destroyed by God in his time. So we've seen the Antichrist as he's entered. We've seen his end. And now we will see the, the Antichrist's empowerment as he is in his life. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power, signs, and false wonders. So this Antichrist comes in accordance with the activity of Satan. This word literally is "energia." It means the energy of Satan. It's, it's the word that is used in Scripture for power and action. In other words, he's coming with an active power that is in action. You can see it, it's in movement. It's not just stayed, but he is using it. It's used in Acts, Ephesians 16 speaking of uh, e- Ephesians 1:19, speaking of God's power as He works in our lives. He's, it says in verse 19, these are in accordance with the working of his strength and might which he brought about in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. In other words, the work in, in, in us, in salvation towards us who believe is an active power of God. And he says here, say, he will come in the active power of Satan. Satan. He comes in real power. This is not just deception, this isn't trickery. It's not like he's trying to, to come a sleight of hand, but he will have power Satan's power. though it, Satan's power is limited, it is real and it is great. And he will come in the energy of Satan and he will do works and manifestations and wonders it will be superhuman and characteristic. And so he will come and display these works and it says, with mighty work or power. In other words, it denotes the inherent power producing these miracles. He will come with a a mighty power to produce miracles. And these miracles will be signs pointing to a significance laying behind the miracles. We remember when Christ came, he came with miracles to authenticate who he was. The disciples did the work of the apostles to authenticate the message that they brought. And the Antichrist will come exactly like Christ did. And he will authenticate himself with his miracles. And they will point to him and they they will demonstrate to the world that he is what God. And he will deceive them. And it says, "In wonders or false wonders, indicates the abnormal nature. In other words, the astonishments they will produce. In other, pe- in other words, people will come, and he will do these miracles in the power of Satan. And he will, he will, he will point to. He will be pointing to who he is. In other words, I'm God. Only God can do these things. And people will be absolutely amazed." They will be absolutely amazed. Now, I can't help but think that we live in a time and an age that is absolutely ripe to be deceived because we've already taken the idea that signs and wonders and visions and all of these miraculous things are the norm in the Christian life And therefore, certainly, if we are speaking in tongues or we see some sort of healing or something taking place or we've had a vision or God's spoken to us, it must be from God. And therefore, when the Antichrist comes, the false church will look at the Antichrist and they will say, that is the Christ, because guess what? He's authenticated by miracles, so it's just got to be. And I'm... to some degree, the charismatic movement has become the starter drug for signs and miracles and for deception. Because if you believe that God is doing all these things now, how much more? How, it's got to be from God because Satan comes as an angel of light. He's not going to come out and be really super scary. He's going to do things that you think only God could do. That's why Matthew talks about what? Matthew 24:24, 24, 24, "For the false Christ and the false prophets will arise and will show good signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, what? even the elect." Now it's not possible, because the elect will not be deceived, but this is how strong it will be. And he will come. He will do all kinds of signs and wonders and they will be false ones. Though he will try to authenticate his ministry, they will be false. They will be fraudulent. It's not that his miracles will be fraudulent because he will have the power of Satan to do miraculous things similar in Egypt, right? Where they replicated many of the miracles that Moses did, but guess what? They they are false. They come from a realm of falsehood. False in their character, he will perform these false impressions, deluding people to the point to accepting the lie of the truth. His miracles have the essential nature of the devil himself, who is a liar and the father of liar, and by nature, a liar. And they will deceive. And he says, with all deception of wickedness, This is the impact of the working of the lawless one. He will operate in every sort of evil that deceives. He will employ every conceivable means of deception of unrighteousness, every form of deception that unrighteousness can devise to palm itself off as righteousness. Did you hear that? I'm going to read that again. Every form of deception that unrighteousness can devise to palm itself off as righteousness. Right? He's not coming and saying, I'm the boogeyman. He's not coming and saying, I'm the devil. I I, I look at my red horn, I'm red and I got horns. He's coming as an angel of light and he's coming as the Antichrist, the in place of Christ one, the one who stands in opposition to Christ and in place of him. His objective deeds will be motivated by a subjective purpose to mislead. The Antichrist will mislead the world with all deception and wickedness. Of all, all, with all the deception wickedness has at its disposal, even not, he's going to be so good, even what non-religious people are going to believe in. Even non-religious people will believe him because his feats will be so great. And they're going to believe that this one to come is actually the deliverer. He's actually the Messiah that was prophesied to come. And so the Antichrist will come in the power of Satan. He won't look like Satan. But he will come in power activated by Satan himself. Lastly, we see the Antichrist entrapment. That deception is for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be what? Saved. It says for those who perish, denotes a class of people, a class of people who have succumbed to the deception of the lawless one, and now that class of people are on the path that leads to ruin. The idea here is that the perishing has already begun. They believe the deception and the perishing has started. They are in peril. They are opposite, this class is opposite to those who are now being saved. And so the stated limitation of the victims of the lawless one was obviously intended as an encouragement to the inflicted readers. In other words, you're not like them. You Thessalonians, you're not like these people. You're not of the darkness. You're of the light. You will not be those who will perish. You're not those who will be deceived. But make no mistake, Paul is not implying that the perishing here are unfortunate victims of predestination unto damnation. He's not saying here that these people are victims and are not responsible for their deception. Their cause for perishing lies not in God, but in themselves, because they have not received what? The love of the truth. There's a responsibility, there's a moral responsibility on them to what? Love the truth. There is a just deserved punishment because they have willfully rejected the truth. They refused, looks back to a definite decision. There was a definite decision that they made in the past not to receive God's salvation. They refused as a voluntary and willing act to open their hearts to love the truth, literally the love of the truth. They made a a moral decision to refuse the truth that they saw. They are not victims who are desiring to see God and wanting to go after God are being held back, but they are willfully by nature those who choose to refuse it. Now, love of the truth here means more than actually just having a intellectual or emotional commitment to the truth. It's not just an intellectual admiration and I think there are many within Christendom that are ex- that who, who, at least in the visible church, are on God's side. They like what he stands for. If they were voting in, a, in an election, he would be their candidate. But they really have no love for the truth in this fact. Is that love for the truth is equivalent to obeying the truth. Right? We can we can actually love truth. We can in, in the fact that we can say, I, I like I like I like God's principles. They work pretty good, right? I mean if you don't steal, right? Husbands are faithful to wives, right? If if we don't, you know, if, if we don't murder, that's that's a good one. I like that. But ultimately there's no restraint in our personal lives, and we are the ones who are adulterating, and we are the ones who are. Who are stealing, and we are the ones who are murdering. And even though we, we think those are bad things, it doesn't restrain our behavior, because we actually have no love of the truth. We just think they're good ideas. But love of the truth produces a life change that results in obedience. The idea here is not just that they refuse the truth, but they have an aversion to the truth, showing no desire to seek and possess the saving truth of God. They actually reveal, as John 3:19 talks about, the love of darkness rather than light. It is the love of truth or the absence of it that tests is the test of a man's character. God sought to awaken them in his love through the truth, through the message of the gospel, but they willfully rejected it. So as to be saved, expresses the divine intention for them in seeking to lead them to love the truth as supremely revealed in Jesus Christ. one writer says, God is not a monster who has pleasure in the death of the wicked but that he desires salvation. And so they did not have a love for the truth. They remained ignorant of the gift that was offered to them and displayed a criminal indifference towards their eternal welfare, recognizing neither danger nor the way of escape. Paul says, this is, this is what happens to those who aren't Christ. They are deceived. And ultimately, in that deception and seeing those signs and wonders, they what, reject the truth. And they perish. They spend eternity in hell. They, ch- they willfully reject the truth that they know and the guilt is upon them and therefore, they are destined for destruction. They refuse to be saved. And so will happen with, with, when the Antichrist comes. Men do it now so much more. Will they be deceived when what? When the Antichrist comes and deceives so that these ones ultimately reject the truth. And there's a warning here. Don't reject the truth that you have. Just because we're not in the day of the Lord does not mean that you can reject the truth of God and get away with it. And there's a comfort here as well. You might even say, why is he telling us these things? If we're gone, why would we even need to know about this? It seems kind of like Telling us what's going to happen after we left. How is that supposed to encourage us? Well, first of all, God gives us a glimpse of the future. We recognize and praise him for what we get to miss and the fact that we're not deceived, that we won't be here to have to deal with it. But I also want to tell you, when the church is raptured, what's left? What's going to be left of Christendom that could be effective in the world? Bible. Right? Right? And if God is still saving and the Bible is still here, then guess what? People will be reading this and they'll be going, wait a minute, wait a minute. So we sometimes think that the Bible is just for us, but it's going to be for all those in the day of the Lord because the, the written word of God will still be here. And there will be those who pick up the word of God and say, Hey, I recognize that. Right. And God will still use his word. The Holy Spirit will still be regenerating people and saving them. And so there's going to be a warning for those who are in the day of the Lord as well. So we take encouragement because we say we're not going to be there and we recognize what's going to take place. And we and but we also take encouragement because guess what? there are those who will pick up the word of God and they will read this and they will say, I recognize that we're in the day of the Lord. I need to make things right with God. Now we know they won't do that unless the Holy Spirit works in their heart and regenerates them. But nevertheless, the Lord will still be using his word and the Holy Spirit will still be working. And there will be those who will read this who will cry out to God for mercy and they will will ultimately not be those who will perish. And so we praise the Lord for that. So this morning we've seen a quick snapshot of the life of the Antichrist, of the lawless one, the one to come. We've seen how he enters into history because God allows him to come. He is restrained now, but he will, at one one point, the Holy Spirit will be taken away in restraining and he will be allowed to demonstrate himself. His end ultimately is controlled by God God is the one who will slay him just like that, just with his breath. We know that he will come in the power of Satan and deceive many. But praise the Lord, we will not be those who will be deceived by him. We have nothing to fear. And so we can take encouragement in knowing the future, knowing what we're missing and knowing that we are secure in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have nothing to fear. We thank you that if we are yours, we have nothing to fear. We praise and thank you that all this satanic lie and all of this deception and all of this evil, we will not have to put up with. We praise and thank you that you have saved us and opened our eyes. And we just pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you, that they would fear the end times, that they would fear the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. They would fear the day of the Lord. And I pray that you would give them a fear of you, that they might turn to you. And I pray that your spirit would work in them and draw them and would regenerate them and make them new and give them life. And I pray just even looking at the day of the Lord and the things that are coming would not only encourage us as believers, but would put dread in the hearts of those who don't know you and that they might turn to you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a glimpse of the future. We thank you for our hope. In your name, amen.